If you've looked at the bulletin, we'll get to the reading. If you've looked at the bulletin, you notice the sermon title, God Calls You to Be Liberal. Uh, I think on another occasion, I, this is not the first time I preached this sermon, uh, I called it Biblical Liberalism, and that may be alarming to some people. <coughs> I mean, this is the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Didn't we, as a church in 1936, leave the Presbyterian Church in the United States because it was wandering into liberalism, denying what the Bible teaches and punishing uh, people who wanted the church to hold fast to it? Didn't we leave liberalism? Well, but there is a biblical liberalism to which God calls us in Christ. That's what I want to speak about this morning. So first we read from <clears throat> Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, and we will read the first... Is that the order I wanted in? I want to read Timothy first. So you get your finger in 2 Corinthians, that'll save time. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. First Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. I'm going to skip a few verses and go down to verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, now, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> Begin reading at verse 1. <clears throat> we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And may God bless us through this word we have heard. We are blessed to live in a country which is prosperous and wealthy <clears throat> beyond almost any other nation on earth or any nation preceding in history. By the standard of comparison, all of us in this room, whether you think you're rich or poor, we're all rich, no doubt about it. And prosperity brings a great danger, the propensity to idolatry, to make an idol of wealth, 
to put our hopes for happiness and well-being in prosperity, in an adequate or better than adequate retirement fund, a paid mortgage. And when these things are threatened, we can lie awake at night fretting over it. What will another pandemic do? What about social and political upheaval? What about inflation? These things can drive us to distraction if we have an idolatrous regard for wealth. The author of Proverbs 30 knew this danger. Speaking to God's covenant people, he says this, Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. And there's, a, there's an anticipation here of how our Lord taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Two things I have asked of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful to me. Lest I be full and deny you. And say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal. And profane the name of my God. The passage we read in 1 Timothy 6. Issues a serious warning also. Against the idolatry of riches. I read again what we read earlier. Those who desire to be rich. Now it doesn't say those who are rich. Those who desire to be rich. Fall into temptation. Into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, so we're talking about covetousness here, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. The words of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount come to mind. Uh, do not seek treasure on earth, where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal, but treasure in heaven, which cannot be touched by any of the evils of this fallen world. Or Colossians 3.5 and Ephesians 5.4, which tell us that greed is idolatry, that the covetous person is an idolater. But also, the Apostle in 1 Timothy 6 uh, has some positive things to say about the proper and positive view of wealth. In verse 18, he says, the Spirit guiding him, they are to do good, that is, those who are rich in the things of this world, they are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And this is what I mean by biblical liberalism, or perhaps better, biblical liberality. To be liberal in this sense is to be generous and large-hearted. Again from Proverbs, Proverbs 11, 24 and 25, Two verses that seem to be contrary to reality, but they embrace the reality that it is God who stands behind them. Hear these words from Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. One person gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. So I want to proceed with three points, three more points. <clears throat> the first is <clears throat> that conversion involves a great reversal. And specifically, God makes liberals. Secondly, liberality is the response of, a, of gratitude to God for his great gifts. Thirdly, liberality is sustained by faith in God's promises. And then some practical thoughts at the end. Conversion is a great reversal. God makes people liberal. Conversion is that work of God's Spirit by which he brings dead sinners who live in the darkness of their unbelief 
to see their sin, to see their need for Christ, to see Christ set before them in the gospel, and are enabled by the Holy Spirit to confess their sins, to repent their sins, and to embrace Christ and the saving promises of God that are fulfilled in him and by him, by his saving work. Conversion brings us from unbelief to faith and darkness to light. From being in Adam, old man, to being in Christ. New creation, new man. And in that, conversion is not only moving us from unbelief to faith in Christ. It also redirects the whole man in his whole life. From within, from the heart. From what you were in Adam, which has been laid aside according to Colossians 3.9, to what God is making you. Colossians 3.10. Or 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away, new things have come. You went from worshipping, whatever were your false gods, pleasure, uh, money, approval, success, uh, whatever, to becoming a worshipper of the true and living God. And to orient your life toward his coming again. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 A big part of that redirection should be a new and reversed view of work and money. In our reading of the law of God this morning, in Ephesians 4, we read this in verse 28. Let the thief, so he's writing to a Christian congregation, here's somebody who has been a thief, who's now a believer, now part of the congregation. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So it's not just thieves stop stealing. Paul does tell the Thessalonians in chapter 4 that they should work with their own hands and not be depending on others. But Paul goes further here in Ephesians 4. Work so that you can give. Yes, thank you. We have a Baptist among us. <clears throat> work so that you can give. Here is a fundamental change of mindset. And not just for liberal, and not just for literal thieves, but for all idolaters. From being a self-loving taker and user, to being made, to becoming an other-loving giver. From being a taker and user, to becoming a giver from the heart. In conversion and sanctification, God intends to change our hearts, which means to change our entire outlook, on our place in the world, on who we are, and our relationships with others, so that we go from grasping and hoarding, and maybe out of conscience giving crumbs of charity, to biblical liberalism or liberality. <clears throat> now why is this God's will for us? Well, because this is the character of God himself. God is liberal, generous, overflowing in grace and blessings. And he calls his children to be like him, to conform to his character. So that brings us to the second point. This liberality of heart is a response of gratitude to God for all his gifts to us, and most especially the gift of his Son, Jesus Christ, and all that we have in him. So we look now <coughs> to the passage that we read from Paul's letter to the second, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We read verses eight and, or 1 through 9 of chapter 8. Now, the context here. Chapters 8 and 9 are about an offering that the Apostle Paul is taking arrangements that he's making for the taking of this offering. And the offering is being taken by Paul from the predominantly Gentile, some Jews in the congregations too, in the countries that we today would call Turkey, Macedonia, and, and Greece. Places where Paul, the evangelist, has been used by God to found these churches. And he's preparing to travel through the churches. He's sending emissaries ahead of him. He mentions one of them. 
uh, to Corinth. And he's going to take this offering in order to relieve the poverty of saints, Christian believers in Judea and uh, Galilee, who are poverty-stricken, first of all, due to a famine, and secondly, on top of that, persecution. So I read again, I read again his words in uh, chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Notice the wonderful contradictions uh, in, in terms here. Extreme poverty overflowing in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor or the grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. The churches in Macedonia were in extreme poverty, and in this case it was due to persecution, severe persecution. You read about it in Acts and other and first and second Thessalonians. Persecution because of their faith in Christ and because they have abandoned the pagan gods that are worshipped by everybody else in their community. Now, why does Paul point this out? Well, because he's encouraging the people in Corinth, the believers in Corinth, to give uh, and to give generously to this offering. And Corinth is a wealthy city. Here are these people who are not wealthy at all. And look how they gave. Well, we are Corinth. We really are. Yet despite the suffering, the poverty of the Macedonian Christians, they looked on giving to relieve the poverty of persecuted Christians in Palestine as a privilege, as a joy, and begged Paul to let them participate. I guess the implication is Paul would have bypassed them because of their poverty. And then when they gave, they gave beyond their means. Kind of like the widow and her might pointed out by Jesus in Luke. Paul explains that their, earnestness, their earnest desire, their generosity, was due to the grace of God working in them. It's not that they were inherently good people. It's that God's grace was changing them and changed them and made them new people and given them a desire to serve and to be generous. And so their generosity arose from their hearts that had been surrendered to the Lord. They are responding in their giving to what God has done for them in Christ. God has given them salvation in giving them his Son. And so that brings us to the second point that Paul makes, that Paul is making. He makes it very briefly in verse 9. For you know the grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. Christian, you are rich. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God's hands are not clenched tightly and have to be pried open for crumbs. But God has opened his hands from heaven and poured out immeasurable grace in Jesus Christ on us sinners who have been brought to know him as our Savior. Well, let's review some of the riches. In Ephesians, Paul begins by reminding his readers that God's generosity, God's love for them goes back before creation. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you. In Christ. And Christ came, sent by the Father, to redeem you from all your sin, from death, from the hell which your sin deserves. The Father was pleased to adopt you as his children and forgave all your sins. He gives you the gift of his Holy Spirit dwelling in you. 
He opens the door to heaven itself that you might have access to his mighty throne over the universe, which, which for you is a throne of grace. And there at the right hand is Jesus, our priest, interceding for us, that our prayers are heard and always answered in grace and wisdom. On top of this, God has promised to us a glorious life in all eternity with him, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We are heirs with Christ to the world to come, and all these gifts of God come to you only because God first gave his Son for you, and then gave his Son to you, and gave you to his Son in all eternity. A lot of gifts here, a lot of gifts. And therefore, only because the Son gave up his privileges and glory, took on our lowly human nature, and humbled himself as a servant, obedient to his Father, obedient even to laying down his life for sinners on the cross. Only because of that are we alive in Christ, made new in him. And so, we say, thank you, Father, for giving your Son to us and for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, eternal Son of the Father, for giving your all for us and giving yourself to us. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming from the Father and the Son to give us life and to dwell in us and to work in us that we might become more like the Son and dwell with you forever. And if that's in your heart to say thank you in that way, then what does God say? You desire to thank me? You desire to love me? Then learn to share generously with others what I have given to you, which in the first place is the gospel itself, but includes all the rest of what God has given us to help others. Well, the third point. Living with a liberal heart rests on faith in God's promises. What's the temptation? As you sit there, as you listen, you may be thinking, as I have wrestled with this, you know, you can get carried away with this stuff. You can lose your sense, your common sense, and impoverish yourself by being generous. Or you can be taken by people who just want to use your generosity, your generous heart. Well, that is a temptation. I give, I lose. It's risky business. Got to be careful. <clears throat> well, there is some truth in that, isn't there? But I call to your attention what we read again in 1 Timothy 6.19 to those Christians who are rich in goods, in wealth, that they should be rich in good deeds and generosity. He says to them, you are storing up for yourselves a good foundation for the future and taking hold of that which is truly life. I truly live, not when I am grasping and putting my faith in what I can hold on to, but when I open my hands and open my heart and live in love freely. Then I'm truly living in Christ. Or what he says to the Corinthians, we didn't read this passage, 2 Corinthians 9, 8-11, but I'll read part of it now. God who is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency, that's all the alls here, all, all grace, all sufficiency, and all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, quoting now from Exodus, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies, this is Paul, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your, your, your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That is, through the offering that we're taking from the churches. When we deliver it 
in Judea will result in great thanksgiving to God. So you're giving not only to them, you're giving cause for great thanksgiving to God. Paul again. You will not only suffer... <laughs> me again. Not Paul. You will not suffer. You, you will not suffer because you are generous to the ministries of the gospel in Christ's church. Nor will you suffer if you are generous to needy people around you and in distant places. Hebrews 13.5 counsels us. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Trust God. Cling to Christ. But hold your wealth with a loose grip, ready and willing with joy to open your hands to meet needs of the church and of people. Now, I want to conclude just some practical things. I'm not going to elaborate on them. Uh, the first is, you hear people talk about, well, before I give to somebody, I want to know if he's among the deserving poor. Not a drug addict, he's a squander, he's a thief or something. No, a deserving poor person. Now, you think about that for a minute. Was that God's outlook when he set his love on you in Christ? Ah, there's a deserving poor person. I'm going to save her. No, we are not deserving of the least of God's good gifts. And so the question is not, does this poor person deserve help and gifts? The question really is, or should be, how can this person be served in a way that will truly help them? And that involves the gospel. It may involve other things as well, but administered with wisdom, not foolishly. So I'm not saying climb to the roof of a house in a poor neighborhood and throw out a basket of $100 bills. Okay. Another point. In times of disease and social fear, we've been through that, and it'll probably come again. In times of fear, of disease, and, and social fear, don't be governed by fear. Don't be unwilling to give a helping hand to members in the church or to neighbors, groceries, prescriptions, drives to the doctor, whatever the need may be. Be liberal. Another point, be liberal in the giving, not just of money, but of your time and your talents and your energy. Not everybody needs money. But maybe in your neighborhood, you're aware of maybe some properties that look run down. Well, maybe the owner's not negligent. Maybe he's just, or she is just old and is not capable of maintaining the property. So maybe you and your kids, you could offer to clean their gutters and tidy up their gardens and mow their yard and do it in the name of Christ and pray that it would open a door for the gospel. <coughs> People have been out of work. It'll probably happen again. Who's providing food for the hungry? Well, we don't have in this church a uh, pantry for the poor. And, and the practical reason is this church is located in a place where you're not going to get walk-ins who are poor. We're surrounded by pretty well-to-do people. <coughs> but there are organizations, Christian organizations, that do involve themselves in, in ministering to the poor in this way. And you can volunteer. And I found in Janesville that uh, people in the congregation who volunteered to help an organization in town that did this sort of thing had many opportunities to say, you know, I'm helping you because Jesus loves me and helped me. And, you know, I'd love to sit down with you sometime and talk about it. Uh, so you can get involved in that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of talk about, a lot of talk right now about uh, abortion. 
easy to pick on women. A lot of fault to find, perhaps. Many are very desperate. And they find their way to Christian ministries, Christian-run clinics. And they need volunteers. And they train people to fit into their program. Again, in Janesville, several of our members uh, took the training and worked with a couple of different uh, pregnancy uh, clinics and uh, had wonderful opportunities to present the gospel, to encourage people, to pray with them, and to help them. Uh, I skipped over something, but time's running. So, what's the most famous Bible verse? You even see it at football games. <laughs> John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Make sure that you are believing in Christ and receiving that gift of God in him. And then desire to be like him in giving yourself. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that we are, by nature, grasping and self-serving, often feeling guilty about this. And then we look at your Son, Jesus Christ, and we look at you, the Father, who only ever, ever loved his Son and gave him for us, and gave us everything that we need to live in this world and to live with you forever. We pray, Father, that you would help us to meditate on these wonderful truths and that they would have a transforming effect on our outlook, on life, on ourselves, on our wealth, on the needs of others and of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.